number of years ago when Lisa, our daughter, was about seven or eight, she would sit in church, and of course Martha's singing in the choir, and I'm up here on speaking, leading the service. And in those days, the back of our bulletin didn't have anything on it. It was just a blank page. And, uh, and I don't know what every bulletin ought to have a blank page in there, but when sermons get boring, whatever, you can sit there and act like you're taking notes and you can be exchanging recipes or whatever you may want to do. But uh, this, uh, Lisa would always have a bulletin. She had a pencil there, and, and she has a wonderful artistic ability. And she was drawing a picture of what was going on in church that Sunday. And she was seated out there five or six rows back, usually with Mary Grace Williamson or someone to, to sit there with her. And uh, Lisa drew a marvelous drawing on the back of the bulletin, which I have framed and in my office. If you ever want to come by to see it, I, I would like for you to see it. I'm, let me tell you about it. It's a picture of, of church here. And I'm standing up here and had no pulpit then. That's, we haven't had a pulpit here for 25 years or more. And uh, the pulpit, uh, I was standing up here preaching away. And uh, she made me look pretty mod. I don't know. It looked like a patch pocket coat, you know, and my hair looked longer than it than it is, uh, even when it's extra long. And uh, I was standing up here preaching away, and here's the choir sitting up here pretending to pay attention, you know. <laughs> but they were sitting up there, and Lisa started over here on this side and drawing the women, and uh, everybody in the choir had a big smile on their face. Everybody in Lisa's world had a smile on their face. The choir was smiling. And this is in the day when women flip hairdos were sort of in vogue. That's easier to draw, too. You just go like that, you know. You can move along faster. She did a better job on the left side than she did when she got over here. She kind of got impatient, got over here to the sopranos, and they didn't look nearly as good. But what, whatever, and the men all smiling. Most of them didn't have a whole lot of hair. They had a lot of smile on their face. And I'm standing up here, and I, cartoon-like, Sandra Kester, who was our deaf minister then, was over here interpreting for the deaf, and she had her in there. And uh, out of my mouth was a line, cartoon style, in a great big circle. And what I'm saying is, God loves you and that's no joke, with an exclamation mark. God loves you and that's no joke. And from various members of the choir, she would have a line coming out in a circle, and they'd be saying, Amen. And a few of them say, Yay, Y-E-A. Don't you like that? I think that's a better than Amen. Sounds so seminarian, you know. Yay, okay, amen, yay, amen, yay. And uh, from down in the audience here, the congregation, you'd see a line coming up, and other people, deacons were awake that morning, were saying, were saying amen or yay. And uh, so then the, the best part of the picture, Jesus in a stained glass window there, huge stained glass window, and out of his mouth, a line drawn in a great big circle, and in that circle, in capital letters, Amen, with an exclamation mark. Here I am. God loves you, and that's no joke. Amen, yay, amen, yay. And Jesus says, Amen. Well, we were going home to church that Sunday after church, and I asked Lisa how was church, and she said, fine, she was in the back seat. Mike and Steve were not with us. They were with someone else. I don't know where they were that Sunday. And uh, this was before the day of seat belts, so Lisa was standing up there between the seats, and and I said, how was church today? She said, I drew this. And she showed that to me. And I looked at it. And I thought, 
I'm so grateful that my daughter is getting the impression early in church that it's a loving place, that God loves you, and that's no joke. My, how wonderful it would be if every child, every adult, everybody everywhere could only get that message. So that is the message, you know. God loves you, and that's no joke. Somebody say amen. Anybody want to say yay? Yay. Okay. <laughs> well, I looked at that, and I just, and I showed it to Martha, and Martha looked at it and said, isn't that wonderful? And then she looked at me and kind of quietly said, Buckner, whenever you get Jesus to say amen to your preaching, you are really preaching. <laughs> Well, I, I'm convinced that's true. Uh, I also wonder, I, I wonder sometimes whether he says amen to some of the things we say in his name. We may mean well, we may be sincere, but it may come across as not what he is really like. And I can imagine him just sometimes sort of shaking his head, saying, where in the world did they get that idea? Where in the world did they get the idea that I came to judge the world? I told them I didn't. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's the message. Amen is right. Yes. That's the ultimate message. And that's why he said amen. And he still says amen. The message of Jesus Christ is love for God and love for one another. A man ascribed uh, that in the, in the, in the Bible is a person who specialized in the law and all of the laws and discussing them and applying them and adding to them and where do the laws apply. One of these teachers of the law called the scribe, reading from the 12th chapter of Mark, it's also in the 10th chapter of Luke, one of the teachers of the law, verse 28, came and heard them debating and noticed that Jesus had given a good answer. He asked him, asked Jesus, of all the commandments, well, this is important. Listen, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one answered Jesus. What's well, a great question. And I want you to listen to the greatest answer. Of all the commandments, what's the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. The Lord our God is one. And you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The second is this, you love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. He took two statements out of the Old Testament, one Leviticus, the other Deuteronomy, picked them up, put them together, and said, this is it, this is the supreme commandment, the fulfillment of all the other commandments, for love is the fulfillment of the law. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Now I want to tell you what Jesus did when he gave that single answer to this question. When this scribe asked the question, he knew, but you and I may not know, but I want to inform you. There, at that time, there were 613 laws, religious laws, Religious laws, 613 of them. 248 of them were commands. 365 of them were thou shalt not. Prohibition. Don't. 
39 of them had to do with the Sabbath, the observances of the Sabbath alone. 613 laws, which is the most important. I want you to notice what Jesus did. It is simply phenomenal. Earlier in his ministry, he had already dealt with some of the laws, for example, dealing with the dietary laws in the Old Testament about the things that you could eat and the things you couldn't eat. Jesus obliterated, he just wiped all of those off of the menu with one single statement. He said, it's not what goes into you that contaminates you, for it comes out in the normal bodily functions. What contaminates you is what comes out of your heart. For out of the heart proceed the issues of life. And so suddenly, all the dietary laws are shattered. With one statement, you obliterated the Sabbath laws, all 39 of them. In one statement, Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. All those rules and regulations gone. And if you don't realize it, let me emphasize the fact that Sunday is not the Sabbath. Saturday was the Sabbath. The Sabbath began at sundown on Friday and ended at sundown on Saturday. Jesus was dead on that day. He was raised on the Lord's Day on Sunday, which is why Christians worship on the Lord's Day and all the Sabbath observances are over because they have all been fulfilled in Jesus Christ because every day is holy to those who know and love the Lord. Fantastic what he has done. No wonder the religionists were upset with him. No wonder they were. He not only went around kicking their sacred cows, he barbecued them and served them to prodigals coming home from the far country. What a man. What a revolutionary. Love God, he said. This is a commandment. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Incidentally, if you go back and look at it, at the Old Testament verse Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy 6, the 4th and 5th, 6th uh, chapters, 4th and 5th verses. The word mind is not in there. Jesus added that word. He added the word mind. He said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind. That was not in the Old Testament. He added that word because what he wanted us to see, that love was not primarily an emotion, it was a primarily a way of thinking. Paul said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Love God with all of your heart, not just your emotions, all of your soul, that inner spirit of you, but with your mind and with all of your energy, with all of your strength. In other words, with the totality of your being, devote your life to God. That is number one. Now listen, if you and I don't start there, nothing is going to work right in life. If we don't begin by loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, I believe anybody in the world, when they realize what kind of God Jesus is and reveals, will love him. I think the big problem in our world is the misconceptions people have about God. I believe with all of my heart that if people just understand what Jesus is really like and what God is like as revealed in Jesus, they will love him. My soul, knowing him, who wouldn't love him? He loves you. God loves you. Unlovable as you may think you are at times, God loves you. As unworthy as we think ourselves, God loves you. And that 
no joke. And because he first loved us, when we realize that God is love, listen, God is love. Love is not something that God does as an attribute. That's his nature. The essential nature of God is love. You say, well, he's a, he's a creator, yes, but he's a loving creator. Well, he's a judge, yes, but he's a loving judge. The essential, basic nature of God is love. He loves you. And that's no joke. And he says, love him back. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And life will suddenly begin to fall into place. It's amazing, isn't it, how we try to work things out without God? We have the idea, it's always around that man, just give him enough time and, and intelligence and money, and he can solve any problem. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, that great, uh, courageous dissident against the Russian system, the man who received the Nobel Peace Prize for his literature, cancer ward, a little book that I'd recommend everyone read, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, and then the Gulag Archipelago, that diary of his experiences, in the Siberian prison camp because of his opposition to communism. He spoke within the last few weeks for the 200th anniversary of the French Revolution. And he said the French Revolution was a failure. The Russian Revolution was a failure. The fascist revolution was a failure. Right-wing revolution, left-wing revolution, all of them are failures. He said the reason that the revolutions failed is because they did not deal with man's basic human nature. Revolution is just rearranged the deck chairs on the Titanic. They just straightened the pictures on the wall. They just think if you get a different captain and crew and menu, that the ship's not going to sink. Friends, the ship is sinking. As H.G. Wells said in his great story in 99, everybody was having a good time on the deck in the ballrooms in the Grand Salon. They didn't realize that a piece of machinery had come up, had gotten loose down beneath the water line and was hitting against the sides of the ship and it was about to go down and nobody knew it. Friends, that's a picture of civilization. That's what Solzhenitsyn was saying unless we deal with the basic problem of human nature, all the political shenanigans right, left, or middle will not work unless we love God first with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. I wish he had stopped there. Jesus had everybody saying amen. Who wouldn't love God when you know what kind of God he is? Some of you are saying, Bugner, why don't you stop there? We'll all go home happy. <laughs> we'll beat the Methodists to the restaurant. <laughs> Jesus didn't stop there. No, he doesn't. He puts it right down where the water hits the wheel in my life and in yours. He said, wait a minute, I'm not through. If you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you turn that coin over on the other side that says you love your neighbor 
that you love yourself. You can't separate. They're inseparable. You say, don't, don't tell me you love me and hate your neighbor. That's incongruous. That's incompatible. It's antithetical. Doesn't count. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Did you hear what he said? He bases the love I'm to have and you're to have for others upon our self-love. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, he's not advocating egotism or vanity, not any such thing at all. He just knows that our attitude toward ourselves will be dramatically changed when we realize that we are loved by God and that God loves us and that it's no joke. And when we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we will see ourselves in a new way. And when we see ourselves in a new way, on the basis of this new evaluation we have of ourselves as the objects of God's love, it will alter our attitude toward those around us. And he bases, therefore, our love for others upon a proper kind of self-love that is being conditioned by a love for God above all things. We come to love ourselves. I've told you this recently. I think Carl and Sue Moore and I went out to our youth home one night, uh, many years ago now, the, to the girls' youth home that we were sponsoring. And there were 12 or 15 girls there, ages 12 to 16 or 17, who couldn't live at home for one reason or another. And, and we were sponsoring a, a place for them to stay and, and uh, Bible study and various things of ministry to help. And I went out there and sat on the floor and we sat in a circle. And these girls went around the circle and they introduced themselves one at a time. And they introduced themselves to me this way. They, the first one said, My name is Betty and I'm somebody because God loves me. I never heard that and I thought, wonderful. Next girl said, My name is Jane and I'm somebody because God loves me. Came around to me and I said, I'm somebody. Not because I'm a pastor or been to school or go to church or whatever. I'm somebody. Not because of what I do, but because I'm loved by God. Some things are loved because they're valuable. Other things are valuable because they're loved. We don't love ourselves because we think we're all good and moral and better than anybody else. We're not, and we know that. The reason we have a different attitude toward ourselves is because we know God has a different attitude toward us and that we're valuable, not because of what we have done or doing, not because we're religious, not because we read the Bible and go to church, all those wonderful things, as fine as they may be. You can't get more love out of God than has already been given to you in Jesus. You can't get more than all, and he loves each of us, as Augustine said, as though there's only one to love, you're totally loved by God. Whoever you are, whatever's happened in your life. Martha and I, 35 years ago this month, bought a house out on Blanton. We paid $27,500 for it. We still live there. It has increased in value just because real estate has increased in value over the last 35 years. That's our 
biggest single asset for management. I don't know what it's worth. Don't want to move, want to stay there. God willing, the rest of my life. But, did something happen to Martha? With our children, our daughters-in-law, or our grandchildren? I'd sell that house and everything I own and all I could borrow if that's what it took to help them have the surgery or the medical treatment that they need. I'd do it in a second. And so would you. It's tragic that there are people who have to do that in a country as affluent as America. But they do. And I would. Much as I like that house, compare that house to Avery, Julia, Megan. What have I done? Written any books? Painted any pictures? Built any temples? No. I love them because they're them. And they are valuable because they're loved. They are worth more than the entire material universe. You are worth more than the entire material universe. God loves you. And you can accept yourself and forgive yourself. Not excuse yourself, forgive yourself. Because God has forgiven you. And you can rejoice in your forgiveness. Because you're loved. And then start loving your neighbor, Jesus said, as you love yourself. Listen, if you begin with trying to love your neighbor, you'll never get it. It'll never work. You begin by trying to change the attitude you have toward yourself. Get new self-esteem, go over there to the bookstore and buy all the books on all these things on how you can lift yourself by your own bootstraps. They're not going to work unless you love God first. Love God first, and then that'll change the attitude you have toward yourself, and you'll have, have a healthy, divine kind of self-love that will then permeate your life, and then through your life will begin to reach out, and you'll begin to love others the way you love yourself. Dr. Hammarskjöld, the great executive secretary of the United Nations, untimely death in Africa many years ago, his marvelous book, Marking, said, a man at war with himself will be at war with everybody around him. That's it. Listen. A man at war with himself will be at war with everybody around him. A man at peace with himself will be a peacemaker. And blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said, for they shall be called what? The children of God. A man who has a proper kind of self-love because he loves God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength will be a loving kind of person. You don't begin with your neighbor or even yourself. You begin with a love for God that changes your attitude toward yourself that reaches out and changes your relationship 
to the world around you. Love your neighbors, you love yourself. How do you love yourself? As a Christian, how do you love yourself? Well, you're not in love with yourself. The word love in the New Testament is not, not an emotional word. It is an attitudinal word. It has nothing to do with feelings. It has nothing to do with feelings. Please listen to that. It has nothing to do with feelings, the kind of love God is talking about. It has everything to do with thinking. Let this mind be in you. It has everything to do with attitude. You do not, you're not in love with yourself. I don't imagine many of you got up this morning. I certainly didn't. Walked in the bathroom, turned on the light, and looked at myself in the mirror. And said, oh, bugger, you turned me on. Oh, you give me goosebumps. Let me hold your hand. Ridiculous. I, I want it to sound as facetious as it is. Not in love with myself. You're not in love with yourself. I turned the light off. I turned it back on and I looked at it and I said, what's a young man like you doing in an old body like that anyway? But I'm not in love with myself. So I'm not to love you in that sort of feeling way. That I'll love you if you love me. I'll love you if you'll do what I want you to do. I'll love you if you will say, I'm wonderful. I love myself unemotionally. I also love myself unconditionally, and that's how I'm supposed to love you. I love myself unconditionally. I'm always on my side even when I know I've kind of fouled up. I always separate me from my sin. Don't you do that with yourself? We've all grown up hearing, love the sinner but hate the sin. That's true. We do that with ourselves. We just don't do it with other folks. I always separate me from my sin. I always think, boy, if they only knew how tired I was, how busy I was, they, they would understand why, my, why I was kind of impatient. They don't understand. I always do that for me. What kind of world would it be if we always did that for each other? What if we all gave, always gave each other the benefit of the doubt? What if we always separated everybody else from some of their behavior that we may or may not like? Jesus didn't tell us to like everybody. That's not, that's not what he's talking about at all. You don't like yourself all the time, do you? Have, do you ever spend a day, you think, I, don't, I, I was just out of sorts today. I don't like the way I feel. I don't like the way I performed today. You're still on your side. If your house catches on fire, you're going to get yourself out of there to make a difference how much you've disliked yourself for the day, right? Because you love yourself unconditionally. If we love each other unconditionally, think of the difference it makes in our homes. And among Christians, the unhealthy competition we see among Christians in churches and denominations must break the heart of God. Look at the difference it makes in the world. Just the Christian people loved each other like that. And how can we expect the world to begin to behave like that if we don't behave like that? How can we say to them, you ought to do this in Washington or in Somalia or in Russia. Well, we don't do that. Among Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians and Pentecostals and Catholics 
and Democrats and Republicans and black and white. We don't do that. We love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And our neighbors, I said, we'll do it. And you'll see a difference being made in the world. We'll see a difference being made in the world. And I don't believe a difference is going to be made in the world until the church becomes what Jesus intends it to be. And if the world comes apart, I believe God's going to hold us accountable for it. We are to be the agents of reconciliation in the world. God's people are. Paul tells us that. We are ministers of reconciliation, having been reconciled to God through faith in Christ. In the book of Corinthians. So I love myself unemotionally and unconditionally, and I love myself spontaneously, just how I love myself. I'm on my side. For better, for worse, richer, for sickness and health, love and cherish, always on my side. Boy, if I was always on your side, and you were always on her side, and you were always on his side, we were always on each other's side. What a difference in our world. Back to Lisa. Closing word and we go. It was another Sunday. We were going home to Sunday school and I said, Lisa, what was Sunday school like today? She said, fine. I said, do you remember the memory verse? Yeah. What was it? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Well, oh, that's interesting. What do you think about that? I could see her thinking because I could see her in the rearview mirror standing between the seats again. She didn't know I could see her. We had a little boy in our neighborhood then that some of you know about or you've heard me tell about. His name was Robert. We called him Little Robert. There was nothing little about Robert. Any more than something little about atomic bombs. I mean, Robert was something else. Even adults went in the house when Robert came out to play. He was a terror. He's probably a pastor today somewhere. <laughs> or a missionary. Yeah, that's it. Who knows? Miracles that God can perform. Boy, but Robert was something else. And uh, I can say Lisa thinking, and she then I said, if uh, does that mean that I'm supposed to love mother and you and Mike and Steve? And Princess, as much as I love Robert. I said, Lisa, that's what he said, isn't it? And I could see her thinking, and she kind of shook her head, and her hair just kind of flipped, and shook her head. And she said, No way. No way. You know something? She was right. There's no way I can love you or you can love the person around you or next to you, next door to you, across the world from you if you don't begin where Jesus told us to begin. With God. Love God. That's the starting point. And if we don't start at God's starting point, we'll never get out there where we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We can't do it. We're not built that way. It takes some supernatural infusion of God's great grace and eternal love to change the way we feel, 
about ourselves and about the world. A new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. Where do you start? Start right where you are right now. By giving your heart to Christ and becoming a part of a church, this one or another one, if that's where God leads you, and I'll help you join that church if that's where you feel you should go. But, but join a church where there are people there that are going to help each other grow in this whole business of love. That's what the church is all about, or should be all about. A growing place, a sharing place, an affirming place, a loving place, a healing place, a forgiving place. It's not a perfect place. No one in it is perfect, but the head of the church who is Christ is perfect, and he will be our perfect love, and with his complete love filling us, will drive away all fear and all doubt. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Would you start right now? Many did in the earlier service. Would you come to trust Christ or to join his church or to come for prayer, rededication, whatever God leads you to do? Come as we stand and as we sing. Just as I am with